Welcome, all you happy warriors. Thank you for tuning in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, continue to solemnly dedicate myself to revealing for you how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thank you for telling other people about it, because this is a show in which we spend a little time together every week exploring ancient Jewish wisdom and exploring its implications on the Bible in areas of people's lives that they really do care about. And so, happy warriors, we are all because we do not float down the gutter of life like tennis balls. We challenge ourselves. We leap at life and grab it by the throat. And we confront our challenges with our backbones erect, gazing steadfastly into the eyes of approaching difficulties. And we overcome because we are able to turn timidity into triumph. And a, a happy warrior is somebody who recognizes that the biggest joy in life comes from dealing with challenges, from overcoming adversity, and from demanding more of oneself than anybody else would ever demand of us. That's all part of the credo of the happy warrior. And one of the challenges I think that we're having right now, and this is not unique to the United States, and I mention it knowing full well that even just this past week, I have received either comments or letters to our website from uh, people in um, uh, Botswana, one person from Botswana, which is a wonderful little country in Southern Africa, and from Kenya, uh, from Canada, several from Canada, Toronto and Vancouver, two major um, Canadian cities, as well as from some places that are smaller and less noticeable, uh, less, less well-known, uh, from India, from Chile, uh, Russia, Ukraine, um, Israel, and believe it or not, one letter from a lady who listens to this show in Saudi Arabia, where very interesting things are happening. For the first time ever, flights are being allowed over Saudi Arabia of flights that originated in Tel Aviv, Israel. Never happened before. And now Saudi Arabia is going to be allowing flights between Israel and Dubai and Israel and Abu Dhabi. So extraordinary things are happening in that part of the world. And it's particularly fascinating because the peace being created between uh, Israel and the Gulf states, uh, Bahrain. I hear rumors of Morocco coming up soon. 
all of these amazing agreements do not involve the Palestinians, right? The guys causing the terrorism and the trouble um, around Israel and sometimes in Israel. Uh, it doesn't include them. And you might remember there was a uh, perhaps one of the most incompetent secretaries of state we've ever had, uh, a terrible guy called John Kerry. And um, uh, only a few years ago, this is what he said. There will be no separate peace between Israel and the Arab world. I want to make that very clear to all of you. I've heard several prominent politicians in Israel sometimes saying, well, the Arab world's in a different place now. We just have to reach out to them and we can work some things with the Arab world and we'll deal with the Palestinians. No, 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 and no. I can tell you that reaffirmed even in the last week as I have talked to leaders of the Arab community. There will be no advance and separate peace with the Arab world without the Palestinian process and Palestinian peace. Everybody needs to understand that. That is a hard reality. Right. It's a hard reality if you think that what a career politician like John Kerry says uh, is valid and important. But it isn't, you see, and, and that's really uh, something that is understood by more and more Americans. Uh, it's understood very much by Donald Trump, who has, I think, effectively recognized that one of the divisions in America, uh, it was the Trump and Hillary Clinton division. It's now it it, it is now the the Trump and Biden division is really between the world of American university centric intellectuals, people who simply never have to worry about next month's rent, people um, who don't actually make anything or grow anything but who are professional talkers and opinion makers, and on the other side, everybody else. Now, I know that I am speaking about uh, America, and don't for a moment think that I'm not aware of you in Botswana and you in Kenya and you folks in Canada and in India and Chile, um, the people in Ukraine um, I heard from recently, Russia, Israel and uh, Saudi Arabia. The things I'm talking about now, right now, may be mostly relevant to the United States, but they are not irrelevant to you. Firstly, because what happens to the United States uh, is very important for almost every country in the whole world. So no matter where you live, you kind of want to know more about what's going on in the United States than you care about what's going on, for instance, in Sri Lanka or Bangladesh. What's going on in America actually probably will impact you in one way or another. And the other thing is that what I'm talking about are very real challenges that confront any group of people trying to build a society or constituting a society, um, the emergence of a ruling class. This is real. And while I'm talking about it in the context of the United States, you can be sure that wherever you live in the world, 
the same things are being played out. Thomas Sowell wrote a book. Uh, this, this goes back, gosh, I want to say 30, 40 years. But Thomas Sowell's books are really timeless. And the name of this book was Knowledge and Decisions. And he spoke about how problematic it was that more and more decision-making um, in America and elsewhere has drifted away from the individual voter or from the family or from voluntary associations of various sorts, and it's moved towards government, and within government it has moved away from elected officials that are accountable. People who are elected are, are accountable to the electorate, and these decisions, uh, or the decision-making has moved away from accountable individuals um, and away from elected individuals towards more insulated government institutions, bureaucrats, um, judges. And one of the very disturbing things that's been happening in the United States are the number of occasions on which Congress, that is supposed to be making the laws, actually surrenders that authority to bureaucrats operating within the, the vastness of government and they like that because obviously if it is a decision that some of their constituents uh, would not favor they don't have to go back to their constituency and say well yes i did vote for that they don't vote for it at all and they hand the decision making to the bureaucrat who is a shadowy concealed figure never accountable to voters or individuals or families. And so what Thomas Sowell wrote about was this growing tendency uh, for important decisions to no longer be made by citizens, but to be made by this new ruling class. And it's, it's a huge problem. There's no question about it. Uh, Jason Riley uh, wrote about this um, a little while ago in a, in a very, very good piece where he spoke about uh, how troubling it is that we have watched the transfer of decision-making authority uh, to expert intellectuals, uh, environmental regulations, public health. Uh, these are areas in which no longer are decisions made by people that have been elected by the population, but they're made by experts. They're made by groups of people um, who are um, placed in position and who expand their own bureaucracies at all times. And I, I wanted to um, help and help everybody understand something that's going on right now. People have often asked me when I've explained these these things in, in meetings and groups, uh, Zoom conferences these days. People say, well, you know, what's in it? What's in it? Like, you know, you're saying that um, bureaucrats are, are pushing for certain outcomes and, and for certain results. Why would they do that? Surely they just want the best for the country, the same as everybody else. Well, the answer is it's, it's a very big country uh, today, and there is almost nothing 
that is good for the country, meaning for every single person in the country. Uh, whatever legislation is passed is going to be good for some people and bad for other people. There is almost no exception, certainly none I can think of, to this rule. And so the way that uh, politics works is that you have to be able, as a politician, you've got to be able to uh, demonstrate to the public that what you're doing is for the good of society, it's for the good of the country, it's for the benefit of poor people, or whatever is your most important constituency at the moment, that's what you do. But the notion that everybody is interested in what's good for America, um, there's not a lot of people like that. Um, now, We've got to also, another thing that uh, Jason Riley um, spoke about in his excellent piece was that um, uh, Joe Biden, the Democratic candidate for president in the election of November 2020, um, did an interview recently with ABC News. And in that interview, he heavily attacked and criticized President Trump for not being more deferential to the scientific community. And here's what Biden said in his words, this is about telling the American people the truth, letting the scientists speak, listening to the science and stepping out of the way. Let the experts go out and let the American people know what the truth is and what has to be done. Okay, this is something I've spoken about on this show many times before, which is that uh, experts have their uses, but not when it comes to operational decisions. In my life, I make the operational decisions for me and my immediate family, not experts. It is my job to be as knowledgeable as possible on all aspects that impact the decision, but the actual decision is mine. And, and in the same way, I don't believe Anthony Fauci or any other scientist has the job of deciding American policy. That is why a president was elected. It's not the scientists who have to decide what has to be done. Biden could hardly be more crooked in his thinking here. Let the scientists go out and tell the American people what has to be done. No, not at all. He, they can tell the decision makers and their, their views can be taken under consideration. But what has to be done is a decision that a president has to, has to make. And the reason for that, and this is true for experts in whatever country you live, and that is that an expert in any field is restricted. His expertise is restricted to that field. That's what he knows about. And yet operational decisions very often require a far more generalized idea. And that's one of the reasons that when I vote for a president, I am not looking for the most knowledgeable person. One of the best educated presidents that America's ever had was Woodrow Wilson. Another very well-educated one was Jimmy Carter. These were not effective or good presidents. You don't need a president who knows a lot of things. What you need is a president who is wise, a president who can absorb information and make a decision. That's what you need. It's, it's really very important. Look, um, 
as experience tells us, says Jason, that the best way to raise children is with a mother and father in the home, right? I mean, you do know that, right? And what is the most effective intergenerational anti-poverty program imaginable? Well, it's um, to get married before you have children, right? Uh, but intellectuals now insist this is true in America. It's true in other countries of the world. I've read literally from many, many countries articles from intellectuals, including scientists, and scientists never lie, right? No, but it's just that to a hammer, every problem looks like a nail. Uh, and so prominent intellectuals insist that the nuclear family is over. It's finished. Father, mother, natural children. No, you don't need that anymore. Everything constitutes a family. And uh, the surest way, says Jason Riley, to help the black underclass, well, slavery reparations, of course, not fewer fatherless households, increases in violent crime have brought calls from the public for more policing. But professional activists call for releasing people from incarceration and cutting funding for law enforcement. Low-income minorities want to choose where their children are educated. But elite organizations like the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP, they oppose choice. They oppose charter schools. They just aren't interested because they know better. Now, look, um, would... Okay, let's go back just a little time. March 2020, uh, the beginning of the COVID experience, and um, Donald Trump, the president, uh, speaks about uh, the fact that a combination of a drug called hydroxychloroquine and another drug called azithromycin might be a real game changer in treating COVID-19. Now, let's just first of all establish what those drugs are. First of all, let me say that if anybody I know uh, was unfortunate enough to contract COVID-19, I would urge them without hesitation to go ahead and take um, hydro, uh, uh, hydro, uh, hydroxychloroquine and, uh, and uh, um, azithromycin, uh, why would I do that? Because President Trump said so? No, because, number one, that drug, H, abbreviated to HCQ, instead of saying uh, hydroxychloroquine um, uh, each and every time, HC, H, HCQ is what they call it, it's been used for 65 years. Uh, really, millions and millions of people have taken it to treat malaria. That's very, very standard. Um the uh, and and it's it's in it's in good use number number two uh, the other thing is that um, the Henry Ford Medical Center in Detroit published an article in the International Journal of Inf Journal of Infectious Diseases um, a study of patients in which the severity of illness was fully taken into account and it showed that HCQ and azithromycin reduced the danger of death uh, by 66%. That's huge. 
uh, a study from Italy during this past summer uh, found the same 66% reduced mortality rate. For many patients, uh, there's no question that hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin actually are a very effective way to do it. But remember, whatever happens, the intellectual elite in America does not want Donald Trump to get any credit for it whatsoever. So much so, by the way, that had President Obama, who got the Peace Prize, Nobel Peace Prize for doing absolutely nothing uh, other than breathing, had he brought about this peace, which his Secretary of State, John Kerry, said, oh, can never be done. You absolutely cannot make peace with the Arab world if you don't make peace with the Palestinians. Well, I guess he was wrong. But had they brought about this peace, they'd have, been, they'd have struck new medals to give President Obama. The Nobel Committee would have come up with an entirely new prize, God of the Universe. But because it was Donald Trump, uh, the New York Times complained that at the signing ceremony of literally the most significant Middle East peace initiative in the history of Israel, at the signing of this thing, all the New York Times had to say about it was that people were not socially distanced and not wearing masks properly. Okay. Um, yeah, look. Everything is to make sure that President Trump does not get any benefit. So after he announced the, uh, the possible value of hydroxychloroquine and uh, azithromycin back in March of 2020, um, what, that, what immediately happened was that CNN and the Washington Post and the whole mainstream media uh, started yelling and screaming that uh, HCQ is totally ineffective against COVID-19 and it might even be dangerous. And they literally downplayed and ignored all the evidence. The president didn't pull that out of his, uh, out of his hat. This, there is a lot of research on the effectiveness of these drugs. Um, by the way, a study from China which was published in no less a magazine than Nature magazine, which is, right, a respected uh, paper, um, showed that HCQ does inhibit COVID-19 uh, in cells. What happened was that the scientists and the physicians were actually uh, doing other studies, and this often happens in, in medicine and other discoveries, and they happened to notice that nobody of the people who were being admitted to Chinese hospitals with COVID-19 uh, happened to have been being treated with HCQ for diseases of connective tissues. In other words, there are a lot of patients who had uh, COVID but who were being treated with HCQ and they did not be brought, were not brought into the hospital with dangerous conditions. So they said, wait a second, this looks as if HCQ does inhibit the uh, destructive effect of COVID-19. Wow! And sure enough, tests were done, and yes. And so today, if you attend a dinner party of um, university professors or teaching assistants or graduate students, 
Um, and you bring up HCQ, there'll be bursts of hysterical laughter. Oh, our stupid president thinks that that stuff actually helps against COVID. It actually does. And the, um, the entire public health bureaucracy and the entire mainstream media, they're happy to have more Americans dying. That's right. They are literally happy to have more Americans dying rather than that the president should get any credit whatsoever uh, for saying something good, positive, and true. And um, it's, it's, it's very, very, very interesting. Um, so much so that the Veterans Administration, you know, when the president spoke about the swamp, the Veterans Administration is part of it. And the Veterans Administration immediately issued a study that they didn't even put through peer review. They were in such a hurry to get it out after President Trump's remarks about HCQ. Uh, and they said, well, the Veterans Administration studies show that a higher percentage of patients uh, died of COVID if they were being treated with HCQ, right? So that sounds pretty bad. The CNN then trumpeted out the headline, no benefits, higher death risks from the president's advice. Turned out, however, that that uh, Veterans Administration study uh, was flawed. It had ignored a crucial uh, factor that's part of this, and that is that patients who did receive HCQ in the study were to start with much sicker than those who did not. And so there was no evening out for uh, seriousness of disease. So, um, and you've got to remember that at that time, expert Dr. Anthony Fauci was still recommending doing nothing for patients quarantined at home. So, um, again, you know, nobody is saying that HCQ azithromycin combination is sort of a miracle and it totally gets rid of all COVID, but it does seem to dramatically reduce the severity. And, um, by the way, the Veterans Administration study wasn't the only one. And by the way, I'm telling you all this because for months and months, everybody was quoting the VA study. Oh, the VA study shows the president was talking nonsense. Not only that, but um, they there are two medical journals, very prestigious medical journals. One is called Lancet, or as I'd say, Lancet, and uh, the New England Journal of Medicine. They both rushed into print um, studies that showed that um, the uh, HCQ is a failure and, um, and, and was a disaster. Anyway, would you believe, again, everybody quoting those two studies, but we now know, as of this present date, we now know that Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine actually had to withdraw the two articles um, over a hundred scientists around the world wrote to Lancet and they asked for the underlying source data for the study. Turned out the whole thing was a monumental fraud. There was no source data. This was nothing but a political attempt to once again undermine the president and risk people's lives. It's unbelievable. Um, so be aware of that. Lancet and New England Journal of Medicine had to withdraw these fraudulent studies that it purported to show that HCQ and azithromycin do nothing. They withdrew them and they had to apologize. Right? So these are, I mean, it doesn't get more prestigious in the world of science than these guys. 
And, and by the way, in the week before the study was printed in Lancet, the editors of Lancet called for President Trump to be defeated in November. Really? Well, yes, you see, because it's a public health issue. And I've told you this before as well, which is once you start talking about everything being a public health issue, you are literally handing over authority to the bureaucrats of society because almost everything can be defined as a public health issue. Tremendously dangerous and, um, and, and threatening the viability of society and of culture. And this is happening in your country, it's happening in my country, and it's happening pretty much everywhere. Look, um, I, think, I think you all know that I am comfortable around science. I have been an instructor of physics and mathematics. I, um, I understand a good portion of science. I understand scientific methodology. And uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not uncomfortable with science. And yet, the idea that that means automatically that every scientist's statement is significant, important, and true, it's complete and utter nonsense. And what's ended up happening is that we've come to believe scientists as if they're some sort of magician. <laughs> well... Funny I should say that, because, well, there really is such a thing. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. Um, science. Okay. I've got a general rule, by the way, and um, some of you will remember of having heard this, but I know we got new listeners all the time, which is great. But uh, I've said in the past that um, <clears throat> if you are going to be spending money going to university or you're going to be spending family resources sending your child to a university, please do not let them waste their time and your money taking any course that has the word studies after it. Okay? Uh, I deplore the fact that uh, Berkeley, Harvard, Yale, Princeton, and about 200 other universities offer courses in Jewish studies. You know what? If you want to study Judaism, study Judaism. But as soon as you want to study Jewish studies, I get a pretty good idea of what that course is all about. Um, environmental studies, climate study, gay and lesbian studies, Native American studies, and all the other hyphenated studies courses. But I want you to notice that no university teaches mathematical studies. They teach mathematics. I don't know of any university that teaches chemistry studies. No, they teach chemistry. I don't know any university that teaches physics studies. No, they teach physics. The word studies is a very clear clarion warning that it's fraudulent. It's a fraudulent area of study. Engineering. Have you ever heard of a university teaching engineering studies? I studied engineering. It wasn't engineering studies, it was engineering. How about medicine? Do doctors go to university to study medical studies? No, they go to study medicine. But the word studies tells us of the, that it's an academic fad. It's a trendy thing. 
and that it has nothing to do with how the world really works. And why would you study anything that has no bearing whatsoever on how the world really works? That's important. Well, that being the case, how many times do you think magic and magicians are mentioned in the five books of Moses? Okay, now again, uh, I, I just want to clarify that my perspective is through the lens of ancient Jewish wisdom. And so I'm going to sometimes tell you where things come from or where I get them and how they work. Uh, but whether or not you are a Bible enthusiast is, is irrelevant. You don't have to worry about that. If, if you're not, then just regard it as an interesting book or an uninteresting book. But, but for me, it's much more than an interesting book. And so I'm very curious about when magicians make their first appearance uh, in the Bible. And uh, the answer is that magicians show up for the very first time um, at the very dawn of the redemption of the Israelites from Egypt. What is happening? Well, Joseph uh, has been in the dungeon, and um, and meanwhile, Pharaoh is having a dream that disturbs him. It's chapter uh, 41 of Genesis, verse 7. And Pharaoh awoke, awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And it came to pass in the morning, his spirit was troubled, and he sent and called for all the magicians of Mitzrayim, which is the Hebrew name for Egypt, and if you are already a lucky owner of my recommended Bible, you'll see it at our website. It's called the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Recommended Bible. And if you are, you'll turn to page 125 in order to see this very first appearance. This is where magicians show up for the first time in the Bible. And then uh, a little bit further in verse 24, or again, referring to uh, my Bible, um, page 127, we find um, Pharaoh saying to Joseph, I told this to the magicians, and there were none that could explain it to me. And then they appear a little bit later. You might remember when Aaron turns his rod into a snake in order to persuade Pharaoh that he and Moses were really God's representatives. And that was uh, Exodus, uh, chap Exodus, what, where is it? Exodus chapter 7, actually, uh, verse 22. And here's what happens there. Uh, and the magicians of Pharaoh did the same thing with their secret art, with their secret hearts. Page 183 in Rabbi Daniel Appen's recommended Bible. And um, uh, then you find um, a little bit further, chapter 8, verse 3. And I, you'll see where, where I'm going with this in just a moment. Uh, the magicians did this with their secret arts. That's uh, page 185. And... Uh, and the magicians did so, and they brought forth lice, and so on. And then um, that's pretty much it. They sh the magicians appear one more time during the ten plagues brought uh, on Egypt, and uh, that's that's about it. But but here's the interesting thing, you know what's so fascinating to me is that um, this is kind of pretty much 
all the references to magicians in the Torah. This is it. There's this whole concentration. It's, you know, it's, it's not as if they keep on showing up throughout uh, biblical history. So who are these magicians? And here is a fascinating thing. Uh, one of the best transmitters of ancient Jewish wisdom was uh, a teacher of mine um, called Rabbi Nisim, who lived in the 14th century in the city of Barcelona in Spain. Well, how can I name as one of my teachers somebody who lived six, uh, six centuries ago? And, and the answer is because I know him really well. Now, I've never met him, obviously. There's 600 years separating us and, and, and the Atlantic Ocean, as well as if time wasn't the only barrier. Uh, but I read his words constantly, and I have come to know him. And I've come to know his preferences and his leanings and his tendencies in terms of what he explains and how he explains it. He said a very valuable thing. He proved that looking at the Hebrew word for magicians, which again you will see quite clearly in that Hebrew-English Bible that I recommend, uh, you, um, he shows that the meaning, what magician actually means, is um, basically what we today would call scientists. What magician, okay, let's see, what are scientists? Scientists today are people who reverse and get rid of our troubles and many of our burdens in terms of ill health, in terms of hard work, um, in terms of uh, physical discomfort. Just look what science has done in terms of getting rid of it. And it, it is almost like magic, but that's not the point. The point is that from the word magician we understand they are the people who use the cutting edge to solve problems for the population air conditioning wow frozen food yes um, medicine inoculations um, just think okay science is it's a wonderful area it's a fantastic thing if somebody says who does more for the world scientists or archaeologists that's not a hard thing to answer right <laughs> it really it's 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 pretty straightforward and so uh yeah this 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 is this is amazing who are these magicians they are the scientists of the day and they only appear in the context of israel's del deliverance out of egypt and um the, the, the idea is very fascinating in that it shows us why there is a general tendency to venerate scientists. Now, I, I understand science, as I said. I'm, I, I see the, the truth and the power of science. I also see its limitations, obviously. But I certainly recognize the validity of science as a tool. But that doesn't mean that I automatically think that all scientists tell the truth all the time, any more than I think that as valid as the study of medicine is, that doesn't mean that every doctor is a good man or a good woman. It doesn't mean that at all. And so it's, it's kind of helpful, I think, to understand that there are distortions and the distortions will be used sometimes for political reasons. Sometimes they will be used 
because of financial reasons. Um, it, it's kind of interesting, but uh, Science Magazine reported again this summer, 2020, that 54 scientists who work for the National Institute of Health have been fired. You know why? Because they failed to disclose financial ties to China. Pretty amazing, huh? 54 scientists, that doesn't mean only 54 of them have financial ties with China. Only 54 were fired because they didn't disclose it. Um, it's, it's pretty important. These are people who make statements that then find their way into uh, policy, whether it's through magazines like New England Journal of Medicine or Lancet magazine, or whether it's because their information goes to the bureaucracy called the Center for Disease Control. But these are uh, 54 people who dishonestly conceal the fact that they get money from China. So why would you think you can trust everything that scientists say? I mean, that is pretty awful that this was simply not disclosed that's pretty bad pretty bad another thing um the new york times new york times magazine published a piece recently um about uh, climate change caused migration and they must have used the word might or could a hundred times in the article but basically, what it was saying was, we all, anyone who lives in, in any area that is impacted by global warming is going to become an, a migrant. They're going to have to move and find another place to live. And it was a two-part article, um, about 16,000 words. I mean, that's the size of a small book. New York Times Magazine article. Uh, about the new crisis of migrants, people who are going to be moving around the world because of climate change, all the people who are going to leave Florida and want to move to Norway, all the people who are going to abandon Mexico and want to move to Sweden, uh, and all the people who are going to leave Arizona and New Mexico and Texas and move to Maine and North Dakota, this is going to cause huge problems. Okay, you know, why don't we wait and see if that begins to happen? It'll be a slow process and there'll be ample time to do things. But no, because if you are in the talking trades, if you're not somebody who builds things or make things, makes things or mine. And again, I'm not saying only the materialistic aspects of life matter. I'm not saying I'm just saying that people who actually do things with their hands uh, tend to be more rooted in reality than people with doctorate degrees, people who are university-centric. And so uh, if I had to choose to, to paraphrase something that the late, great William F. Buckley said, if I had to choose to hand over control of my life to 300 professors from Harvard and Yale University, or to hand over control of my life to 300 people who work on a Honda assembly line in Alabama uh, or a BMW assembly line in Georgia or wherever it is, uh, I'd rather take 300 factory workers making decisions over my life than 300 uh, professors or intellectuals. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's as simple as that. Um, I, it, it's, it's called being in touch with reality and uh, kind of important, really.
Now, you might remember that in the days of uh, Joseph Stalin and the evil empire of the Soviet Union, um, there were constant famines. I don't know if you remember, every time there was a new five-year economic plan and millions of people ended up starving. This this happened all through the 50s. Um, what happened, and they always attributed it to bad weather conditions. Do you remember that? Very, very common. Yeah, this particular centrally organized plan would have worked if it wasn't for the fact that there was a bad, bad weather, not enough rain, uh, too much this or too much, too much snow. That's why it's why people are starving, not because of socialism as the organizing principle of a country's economy. No, it's always the weather. Well, I wanted to point out to you that this is happening again now, not only in the United States, but uh, it's happening in Africa, it's happening in Asia, and that is terrible, terrible government policies, awful mismanagement, and now bad results are turning out to be the unintended consequences, and they take a lesson out of Stalin's playbook. You know whose fault it is? It's the weather. It's always the weather. It's never the planners. It's never the socialists. It's never bureaucrats. And where where do we see this? Well, of course, um, forest fires in California. This has been going on for a few years now. Why were there no forest fires in the 1950s? They weren't. I mean, you know, occasionally it happened. They put it out. A small matter. Why devastating forest fires now? Anybody will tell you that uh, it is, in fact, due to um, bad management, right? Um, used to used to have a forest fire in 1950s. If you had a 10,000-acre fire, it was called a huge conflagration. And by the way, I went back to old news accounts to check up uh, that what I'm saying is 100% correct. Nowadays, bigger than 100,000 acres is normal. You can A 400,000-acre fire, right? That is 40 times, 40, 40 times bigger than what would have been a big fire. So what's changed? Well... I'm going to give you the true explanation, and I'm going to give you the explanation given by the state of California and the various bureaucratic agencies that run it, and you can decide which you think is true. The same thing that I'm telling you now is true for Australia. With they, they, South Australia had very bad fires. Once again, I'm going to give you one explanation, and there's another one that I'll give you that is given by the authorities. Okay, so uh, what it is, is that um, mainly it is a lack of management of forest and brushland and grassland caused by radical environmental groups that impose excessive regulations and impose unreasonable restrictions on our ability to keep land safe from wildfire. Um these are all things that used to be done, by the way, up until the 60s. But now there's no controlled burning. And so uh, what happens is you get a huge buildup of flammable fuels, which means dead wood, dead grass, because we're not allowed to burn it anymore. Um, no longer are fire breaks maintained in forested areas. Did you know that? Well, now you do. They used to maintain fire breaks. These are called roads <laughs> in forested areas, which not only 
help to confine the fire. Fires can jump a, a road or a break, but it takes a while and it gives a chance to fight. More importantly, those fire breaks or roads leave firefighters with access to get into these places. Um, okay, logging has been largely terminated and good timber management, it's finished. These forests are now literally tinderboxes. Um, going all the way back to colonial times, controlled burnings have saved the forests from huge conflagrations. Where you, when you burn a large brush field and you use fire to thin the undercover brush, you keep the big fires away. Um, there used to be programs to reduce the chaparral out west in, the, in California forests. Um, that used to stop fires getting out of control. Um, when the west was being settled, ranchers regularly burned fields of brush to make way for grazing and uh, um, animal habitat and so on. This entire program of controlled fire, it's gone, finished. A as late as the early 1970s, there were still, they were still building and repairing and cleaning huge fire breaks around housing areas and forest areas. And these fire roads were cleared all the time, kept usable for large fire equipment. And so there was access to remote areas which allowed firefighters to attack fires and to do so when they just start, not to wait till they burn, until they get to existing highways. These roads not only served as brakes, but they also served as access. And, um, and now, because of the political power wielded by media and radical environmental groups, um, these fires take place. Now, that's the real reason fires are happening. Now you want to hear the government reason? It's simple. Climate change. You see, when terrible socialistic policies produce terrible consequences, it's never the fault of the policies. It's always the fault of the weather. It's, uh, it's, it's unseen. We couldn't have known it. Well, now global warming is causing all the fires. And I would venture to bet that you yourself have even heard of this explanation. You know why they're fired? Oh, it's climate change, global. Actually, it isn't. It's the result of socialism running the show. And one of the side effects of socialism is radical environmentalism, unavoidably. So, and, it, and again, this comes from climate scientists, right? And 97% of climate scientists, are, okay, that, I've already debunked that on an earlier show. But um, again, don't be vulnerable to this idea that science is the answer. You know, it isn't. And scientists are certainly not. Uh, for instance, scientists now tell you, and you, I, mean, I, I saw this uh, recently on a news uh, broadcast, that scientists tell us that the one most important thing to stop the COVID outbreak is face masks. Now, I happen to think that face marks, face marks have a terrible impact on society. But at least up till this point, 
I didn't know much about their effectiveness. I was skeptical about it, I'll tell you, but I didn't actually know a whole lot about their effectiveness. What I did know was that it stops people from smiling at each other. It causes um, outbreaks of ill will between citizens, as some people feel that other people are not wearing masks, are endangering them, trying to kill them. And, you know, people get panic-stricken, people get frightened. And so, uh, you know, the, the, the old person who yells at a young person not wearing a mask, you're trying to kill me. I, I, I mean, I, I understand what panic and fear to do, to do to people. And I regard this as one of the huge costs of the mask policy. But I thought maybe at least, you know, maybe it, it helps a little bit. And the answer is that, uh, no, it actually doesn't help at all. So let me explain what I'm talking about. Um, and this is something you can see yourself very clearly. Many, many tests have been conducted on the effectiveness of these masks at stopping certain things getting through. Now, let me just tell you what these masks are originally made for. They're called surgical masks for a very good reason. They are worn by surgeons during operations. And a surgeon in operation, his head is usually directly over an open um, cavity in, in the patient on whom he's operating or she's operating. And uh, the result is that in order to make sure that no spittle or anything like, like that dropped from the surgeon's face down into the open um, wound or the open area of the patient's body, um, they gave them surgical masks to cover the mouth and the nose just to make sure nothing that could be a contaminant or an infectant uh, would drop from the surgeon's face. So those are, are literally like huge things by comparison. Now, dust, okay, what is, what is the size of dust, would you say? Okay, so, um, so, Okay, so let me give you by way of example. Um, these COVID masks, these surgical masks that everyone's wearing and people are all getting uh, upset if somebody's not uh, wearing them. Okay, so the tests were to see whether they stop dust particles getting in. So they used dust particles for, that come as a result of sanding a wallboard. And these particles are about 40 micrometers in diameter. By the way, by, by comparison, that's 40 micrometers. By comparison, COVID-19 virus molecules are 0 0.1 micrometers. <clears throat> so let me give you by way of comparison. Dust particles, let's say, are the size of a basketball. Okay, about 10 inches in diameter. A basketball. And um, by comparison, a COVID-19 molecule would be the size of a pinhead, about 400 times smaller. Now, these masks let through basketballs, right? The, the spacing between the fibers, the paper or plastic fibers, um, are such that the basketball gets through. In other words, things the size of 40 micrometers get through. In other words, dust. And you can test this. And I've seen pictures and videos of this being tested. You wear one of these masks that everybody's being told you have to wear when you go into a store. And uh, if you 
uh, wear it in an area of, uh, shall we say, large dust particles like uh, wallboard, particles from, from sanding wallboard, you will find them on your face. You will have breathed them right the way through, right the way through that surgical mask, and you'll find them around your nose and mouth. So the basketball size object is getting through, do you have any idea of how easily the pinhead-sized object gets through? So, again, let me just make clear. These masks that everyone's telling you have to be worn, they let through objects of 40 micrometers. And yet the COVID virus is 0.1 micrometer. Do you think it has any trouble getting through? Bottom line is it's a total farce being promoted by people who have all their own reasons for doing this. And... Um, it is absolutely not stopping any um, COVID you may have from getting out to other people, and it's not stopping anything from other people in the environment getting through to your nose or mouth. Zero effectiveness. Zero. Um, well, I will tell you that what, what is not good is that I've spoken to a number of doctors, particularly doctors in emergency rooms lately, and they're seeing more and more cases of students who are wearing these things for six, seven hours a day uh, getting fungal and bacterial infections. Round, why? Because they're wearing dirty masks. They don't change their masks every day and they don't keep them clean. So after you've been wearing a mask for a few days and you put it on again, at that point, heaven knows what you are breathing in. The idea that it's doing some good Nah, not exactly. Not happening. So again, um, use your own judgment. Make sure that all operational decisions in your life you make. Listen to experts, listen to scientists, listen to everybody. But be very, very skeptical. Be a true scientist. In other words, test, test, test monitor, make sure, verify, don't just buy stuff from people because they say, I'm a scientist. Okay, that's not how it works. They're magicians. One more example, if I may, uh, of, uh, of how important it is to not listen um, with, a, with an open mind or, or not to simply accept blindly what you read about in the media what you hear from politicians, what you hear from bureaucrats, what you hear from the mainstream media, um, or, or from anybody else, including me. Weigh everything up. Don't just believe anything. And, you know, the good Lord gave you the power of intellect. He gave you the ability to weigh things up and judge things and estimate things and make a guess sometimes. But it's your educated guess based on your accumulated knowledge and on your accumulated experience. And it's worth something. So um, this past week, the New York Times, if you don't mind, and again, New York Times is just a very good um, stand-in for the amorphous blob of the mainstream media. It gives me something to focus in on. So the New York Times um, does a story called The Faces of Power. 80% are white, even as the U.S. becomes more diverse. And the New York Times goes on to say, these are 922 of the most powerful people in America. 
Only 180 of them identify as black, Hispanic, Asian, Native American, multiracial, or otherwise a person of color. So this is now the natural result of decades of socialism being drilled into our students, our teachers, our uh, society, and not surprisingly, the journalists who run the New York Times now are people who all came of age believing the socialistic vision that the only appropriate way to divide people up is by external factors, the same way as we do animals, right? Because they believe no difference between people and animals. And, um, and therefore, uh, in the same way that if I want a brown cow, don't try and give me a black and white Friesland cow. If I want a little white puppy, don't try and fob me off with a big brown uh, German shepherd, and so on and so forth. External factors are really all that matter. So, as I say, their, their point is that uh, the New York Times is saying how disgusting it is that even in 2020, whites are overrepresented in important jobs like um, senators, congressmen, media moguls, CEOs of big companies, sports team owners, etc., etc., etc. I mean, needless to say, it wouldn't be a surprise to hear that of the 922 people that the New York Times um, showed and and used as their examples, uh, most of them are, are older folks, right? I mean, you know, it takes a while. Most people achieve power later on in life rather than at the beginning. And so um, the fact is that of, um, of America's population aged 40 and over, I checked and um, uh, 70% are white, just by the popular admittedly as you go down in age that number changes but if the age group of the 922 people uh, demographically they are represented as about 70 percent of the population so that's that's one thing that's wrong with the new york times story um other than that the uh sele- the idea that we have to be color matched is a huge problem and lies at the source of much of the unrest afflicting America uh, during the the summer of 2020. Um, so it's it's really really um, it, it's really weird. So half of the largest police forces are run by uh, black men or women. Um, but, says the New York Times, obviously that hasn't helped the systemic shootings and killings of black people. Again, it's, it's really rather remarkable. And again, those of you who are interested in the actual numbers uh, will, will take a look at this and study this. But, um, uh, okay, then only 59% of the top district attorneys are white. Um, but the percentage of people who pass the bar exam is actually much lower than that. Um, I've spoken in the past about how George Soros has influenced the uh, election of very pro-criminal district attorneys, people like Larry Krasner in Philadelphia and Chesa Bowden in San Francisco and Kim Fox, who let Jesse Smollett off in Chicago. These are all people that uh, the uh, Jewish financier, George Soros, 
<laughs> I said Jewish, just because if I just say financier, some people might say, well, the rabbi doesn't want to point out that he's Jewish. Yeah, I, 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 I'm very happy to point out that he's Jewish. I wish he wasn't, but I've taught many times, and I know that most of you have already understood this. There's a huge difference between being a secularized, socialistically leaning American of Jewish ancestry and somebody who is actually active uh, in the Jewish faith. And that would not be George Soros, I can assure you. Um, so anyway, here, here's the thing. So this, they, this is what they're doing. Uh, they're going through the list of congressmen and senators, and they're going everywhere they can that they can find um, places or groups that can be called powerful. And then they're showing, gee, guess what? Uh, blacks are underrepresented in all of that. Um now, you know, there are flaws. I mean, you can look at, as I said, police chiefs and mayors, and and they know full well, the New York Times knows full well, that uh, there is a higher representation than the population figures. And again, it's absurd to think that things have to be done on the basis of population. Again, this is a, a huge contribution to unrest made by President Obama, uh, was to essentially establish in the United States of America the doctrine that if equal results, equal racial results are not found to be proportional to the population, that is in itself evidence of discrimination. That's, that's the position. Now, I thought about this a little bit, and the first thing I thought about was, and you can tell me what you think, but the first thing I thought about was, okay, so if overrepresentation, right, too many whites obviously must mean discrimination against blacks. Uh, how many black fighter pilots are there in the U.S. Air Force? Would there be 12%? No, the answer is much, much less than that. Is that because of discrimination? I don't think so. In my view, the reason there are so few black fighter pilots is that in order to become a fighter pilot in the United States Air Force, you need to score very well in college-level uh, science, math, physics. You've got to actually, uh, aviation technology, you, you've got to study these things. Now, am I saying that uh, black people, no, of course I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that a, a, a progressively built educational system has for decades been graduating black students out of high school with a fraudulent high school, by the way, white as well, with a fraudulent high school diploma, attesting to the fact that they are competent in English, in science, in mathematics, chemistry. It's simply not true. So they are simply not equipped, and this is everybody coming out of the majority of GICs, government indoctrination camps, formerly known as public schools. Uh, they come out simply incapable of taking and passing the requisite college courses in order to qualify for a United States uh, Air Force as, uh, as aviators. It's, it's, it's very simple. How about something else that occurred to me? Um, about 70% about of NFL players are black. And about 80% of uh, basketball players are black. Easy to look that up. And so how about, what does this mean? Does this mean that whites are discriminated against? Really? 
You, are you ready to say that? You've got to say that. If lower black numbers in some fields are because of discrimination and bigotry, then lower white numbers in certain fields would have to be exactly the same, right? And so who is doing the dirty work? Who is, is causing the discrimination that makes it possible for 80% of uh, basketball players and 70% of football players to be black. Obviously, um, other pe- like it, it's clear that Asians are being discriminated against in the NFL, right? I mean, how many Asian players are there in the NFL? How many Asian players in basketball? How many Jewish players in the NFL? Clearly, Jews must be discriminated against. Okay, you see where this stuff leads you. It's, it's really very horrifying. I then did something else with the New York Times list of 992 powerful people. Um, the population of Jews in America are about 1.5% of America's population. So if you're going to have 992 of the most powerful people in America and say, obviously there is something very wrong with America because 13% of them are not black, well then how many should be Jews of these 992 most powerful people in America? Well, one and a half percent, right, of a hundred people is one and a half people. One and a half percent of a thousand people is 15 people. So out of the 992 people, who are, says the New York Times, just the most powerful people in America and there's not enough blacks, what are you going to say about the fact that um, there, again, I, I, I gave it a good count and it's over 100 people on that list are Jewish. Um, you, could, you could probably get up to about 130, but nobody would dispute that out of the 992, 120 are Jewish some better known as Jewish, some less known. But that means now that instead of having 1.5% of the list Jewish, we have about 10%, more than 10% Jewish. What do you say about that? So clearly, somebody must be discriminating or, or advancing them somehow. What is going on here? And it's ludicrous things like this that serve more than any political polemic could ever do to discredit the tired and evil pathologies of progressivism. Far better than anything I could say, these ludicrous results and the illogical conclusions you end up drawing do a far better job of saying, you know, this is all crazy. And so if in your state or your country or your society or your neighborhood, you find the trend towards socialism, the trend towards liberalism, the trend towards progressivism, it's all different degrees of exactly the same pathology. These are things that destroy a society and bring, in the end, suffering and misery to people, just as it did in Cuba, just as it did in the Soviet Union, just as it did during the Chinese Communist Revolution, 
and just as it is doing tragically right now in the United States of America and what it would do if by some absolutely perverted scheme of political trickery and election skullduggery, uh, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris become the next leaders of the uh, American administration. Um, that's what's going to happen. The journey towards the left will continue. As it is, another four years of President Trump doesn't guarantee anything, but at least it gives the country, I think, something of a fighting chance. So, uh, my friends, there's a, a lot of different topics we covered today, but um, most of them are revolving around this idea of don't think that everything that you read in the media that everything you hear from bureaucrats and politicians and everything you hear in the name of scientists say uh, or experts reveal. By the way, I've told you before that disease I call expertitis. Please make sure you do not have expertitis. I think it's more dangerous than COVID-19. I really do. And that means a vulner an intellectual vulnerability to experts. Uh, above all, fathers and mothers, you're raising your children you know nobody loves them as much as you do. And so really, in that area of what is best for your children, really, experts do not know. You are the best source of knowledge of what is really the best for your children. Have a visit to the website, please. This is the last uh, show I'm recording in the Hebrew calendar year of 5,780 because on um, uh, Saturday, um, Saturday the 20th, uh, Saturday the 19th, I'm sorry, of, uh, of September, is the holiday of Rosh Hashanah, and that is the first day of the new Hebrew year, 5781. And some other time, if you like, we can talk about what that dates. What was year zero? If this is the year 5,780, what was year zero? That's something I'll tell you about. I have some material on it on the website at rabbidaniellappin.com. Head over to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, make sure you're subscribed to Thought Tools and Susan's Musings and our favorite Ask the Rabbi column. Uh, take a look at those. Um, visit the store, please, because there is some way we can help one another there. Um, most importantly is Rabbi Daniel Appen's recommended Bible. You can read up about it there. And also there is a beautiful audio CD program you can download wherever in the world you live uh, about the Day of Atonement. Because 10 days after this Saturday comes the holiday, the, the fast day of Yom Kippur, otherwise known as the Day of Atonement. And um, there is a way of utilizing the principles of the Day of Atonement uh, to bring harmony and tranquility into your life. That also is at the store. Look up. It's an audio program. You can download it immediately. And uh, it's very inexpensive, but vastly more valuable than its cost. So uh, that's at rabbidaniellappin.com. Visit that, and uh, it's also a great place to contact us, send us a message, and uh, we always appreciate hearing from you. Susan Lappin and I do. So uh, to our Jewish listeners, a very happy new year, or as we folks say, a Shana Tova. 
And uh, those of you who are beginning to spot Hebrew words in your Hebrew English Bible that I recommend, uh, you'll know Shana means year and Tova means good. It doesn't mean happy, it means good. And so to all of you, wherever you are and whoever you are, a very good year. And of course, until we are together a week from now, I wish you seven wonderful days of good times with your finances, with your families, with your friendships, with your fitness, and your faith. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless you.